welcome everyone. Yes, uh, don't forget, it's not just the lunch, it's the seminar too. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really my pleasure to um, introduce Tony Latai to present this Grand Rounds. Um, but before I do that, I need to read these uh, disclosures. Um, first, I'd like to welcome everyone here and then everyone who's viewing online. Um, and uh, uh, Tony does have a financial interest uh, in that he's a consultant for AbV. Um, Alan Hartford, and uh, the course director for the CME activity, um, reports that his uh, relationship, Tony's relationship with industry, has been resolved by validating um, the content of his pre presentation through peer review. And he does, Tony does intend to discuss off-label um, or investigat investigational uses of a, of a product or device, which in this case is, is, is uh, ABT 199. Um, and also, he's not receiving direct uh, payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So with that out of the way, um, I'd like to say again, it's really my pleasure to invite Tony. Um, so Tony's uh, research uh, enterprise, I guess, started uh, at Princeton, which um, interestingly um, involved Mike Cole in a way that we just discovered today. Um, but he was an undergraduate in physics. And then he went to an MD-PhD program at University of Chicago, where he worked with uh, Elaine Fuchs. And there he worked um, for his PhD portion on uh, blistering skin disorders um, involving keratins. And so um, after receiving his MD um, and PhD, he then went on to um, the Harvard Medical School area, first um, through a residency at Brigham and Women's, and then um, fellowships at Dana-Farber, which is where I met him. And so there, um, as a postdoctoral fellow, he worked on basic mechanisms of um, uh, cell death through um, using animal models and, and focusing on cancer specifically. So um, there are uh, a few uh, sometimes personal things that I make up about people if they want to, if they won't tell me anything interesting to uh, use in my introduction. But in this case, Tony actually has loads of uh, interests outside of lab, um, as well as being a, a, a rock star cancer researcher. Um, but, um, but I think the one that I'll just mention is that um, one that I didn't know when he was a postdoc, uh, that, um, that he plays violin. Um, and and uh, plays in the BSO, or as he pointed out to me, the other BSO, which is the Brookline Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> so so, um, so um, he also does have a lot of interest outside of lab. Um, but the thing I want to point out of, uh, about him also, just on a personal note, which I think is a really, really cool feature in a cancer research researcher, is that um, working with Tony when I was a postdoc, um, it was really immediately obvious that he's one of these guys who preserved that kind of childlike wonder um, in investigating anything he was investigating. So, you know, he, he would never get discouraged by a project and was just, like, amazed by how things work. And I think that that kind of um, sentiment really drives you through a lot of rough times in science. And so that's one thing that really made him a pleasure to work around, and I'm sure is still the case, um, uh, based on your smile. <laughs> so with that, I'll just hand the, the podium over to Tony and, um, and say again, thanks for coming. Thanks, Patricia. Can I be heard in the back there? Is, is my, uh, I think I'm on, right? Okay, great. Um, thanks, Patricia, and thanks to, to Dartmouth for having me here. I can tell you that uh, Patricia taught me two important things when, I, when we were in lab, at least two important. One is she's really the person who guided me through uh, how, to, how to make mice and use mice as a model, uh, in, in my case, for cancer. And the other thing is she introduced me to the best bakery on the eastern seaboard, <laughs> which she still drives all the way down to visit, apparently. Um, Okay, so um, I'm going to start out with a little bit of editorializing, and then I'll go into some data, some of it published, some of it unpublished. But I thought that um, 
I just wanted to make the point that I've, I've tried to keep focused on some goals as I've been running my lab. And, and I think that it's, it's all too easy doing cancer research to get lost in complexity. Like any biological system, it's very complicated. And there's this gene that phosphorylates this gene that enhances an interaction with this thing that, that then makes it easier to, you know, more, more favorably translocate to the proteasome, et cetera. You can go on forever mapping out a lot of pathways in these things. But it's important, I think, to always think about connecting to what I think really are the two goals of cancer research. And that's to identify new therapeutics. And once you have therapeutics, figure out who should get them, match the right drug to the right person. And it's very easy. Sometimes I think e easier than going after these two goals explicitly, it's very easy to sort of track complexity because it never ends. You're always going to have a next step of something binding to something else and so forth. I think it's important to come back to these goals and that in, in a way these goals should be paramount more than just identifying and in some cases like cataloging complexity. I think it's important to come back to these goals even if we're not able to understand all the complexity. Maybe we understand enough to answer some practical questions when a patient enters the doctor's room, a question like, what medicine do I give this cancer patient, which is the fundamental problem that's faced by an oncologist every time they see a cancer patient. And, and, and uh, while things are certainly better than they were 10 years ago, or better then than they were 20 years ago, there is a lot of room for improvement, particularly in the case of long-term disease-free survival and non-hematologic malignancies. So in order to better direct therapy, I would say that there is this kind of I don't know if I would call it a groundswell or a background of thought that genomics is going to be the solution. Now, there is no question that cancer genomics provides a tremendous amount of information. And some of it, some of it useful. I mean, there certainly is, if you want to talk about mapping complexity, this is a, uh, what the heck is this? I mean, uh, there, there's all sorts of things interacting with other things, and, 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 and you, can, you can identify copy number variations and translocations and amplifications, deletions, all these sorts of things. And certainly, it's a great way to, to, to accumulate terabytes of information that it would be hard to accumulate in any other way. However, I think it's also safe to say it's not clear to me how whole genome, whole cancer genome, genomic has, has so far been able to sort of direct new therapies. I think that remains to be seen. It's not to say it can't be done, because it's a relatively early innings. But I think we're reaching the point where for most of the main cancers, a lot of genomes have been, you know, on the order of like dozens of genomes have been sequenced for at least all of the main cancers, and we're getting down to less and less common cancers, or a lot of genomes have been sequenced. And I'd say it's probably the case that uh, we're not always discovering brand new targetable oncogenes. Um, and I think part of the problem is, is the real the real difficulty that is no fault of the genomicist, the difficulty that will always be with is connecting genotype to phenotype. And uh, there's two problems. One is that there's a lot of different phenotypes that can exist for the same genotype. And um, there's a lot of different genotypes that can cause the same phenotype. I mean, a great example, I think, is that of your own body. Uh, if, if, I were, if I were to hand uh, sequencer, say a uh, cardiac myocyte and a neutrophil, and they did whole genome sequencing on these things, they would find absolutely no difference. The, the genome would be the same one to the other, and yet there's a tremendous amount of phenotypic difference between those two cells. So, so I think we have to be humble in what our expectations are for just sequencing a static genome. 
in uh, cancer cells and how they're going to predict the sort of phenotypes that can allow us to get a therapy. And part of the reason why is also this. I mean, what we're told, if you read textbooks or look at AbCamp posters or very often, you know, cancer cell papers or something, it's something like this is, is going on, right? When we treat a cancer cell with a drug, the drug hits a target, and there's this, this, this wonderfully linear passage often through the cytoplasm that may or may not involve the nucleus. And eventually it gets to programmed cell death, in a lot of cases at the mitochondria, <coughs> mitochondrial apoptosis. And if this were the case, then it wouldn't be that difficult. We know that you need this, this, and that in order to communicate cell death. And perturbations in this, this, and that would affect uh, response. And the only way to have, uh, really the only way to have resistance would be some alteration in one of these three things. It would be pretty straightforward. The problem is, just because we draw it this way doesn't mean it's so. I mean, it's probably a lot, you know, signaling is a lot more like this. Something that a colleague of mine, Jared Evan, I liked, I'll steal his word. He calls something like this the Chinese cloud. And I think he calls it that because I think it's a lot less deterministic than we would like to believe it is. There's an awful lot of feedback in both directions that I think we often choose to ignore. But I would say that it's, it becomes difficult. This is one of the reasons it becomes difficult to, to predict response. I mean, when we try to inhibit one of these very non-node-like elements, when we try to inhibit them in order to cause cell death, it's not immediately predictable that the ultimate response is going to be cell death of that cancer. So it becomes hard to direct therapy of, of, of inhibitors at different points along this pathway because it is so complicated, the, the both positive and negative interactions uh, that can take place. So. What are the so essentially what I'm talking about is is a lack of really good predictive biomarkers. That is biomarkers that will tell us when a drug is going to work really well on a particular patient. Because so I think a lot of these things have to be individualized. One thing genomics is telling us is that even within our convenient uh, bins right now, like say uh, uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung, there's not a single genotype that every patient has an individual genotype. And I think it's probably going to be the case that. Uh, you know, there's going to be a, a large variety of response to different agents even within you know, these subgroups of you know, adenocarcinoma or typical histologic subgroups. So the problem is inadequate predictive biomarkers. And where do we run into problems? Well, post-approval, that is to say drugs that are already FDA approved, there's probably drugs out there that a patient could be using that they aren't simply because we're not able to make the connection, for instance, that this patient with adenocarcinoma of the lung, surprisingly, would have responded to, say, imatinib, a drug used, a kinase inhibitor used for CML. I'm not saying that that happens a lot, but I will bet you there's a small percentage, prove me wrong, but I will bet you there's a small percentage of adenocarcinomas of the lung that would respond to imatinib, for instance. But we're not able to make the connection because we don't have good uh, uh, predictors. Pre-approval, I think, is a problem because uh, most targeting therapies fail in clinical trials. That's the way the world. Um, however, it is rare that they fail without some biological activity. That is to say, in the early phase clinical trials, it's not that common for a drug, even a failed drug, to actually have some response, maybe a 10, 20% response rate. The problem is uh, that falls below the threshold for some standard of care. So it's going to be very hard to progress through clinical trials and eventually get FDA approval because you're not meeting the standard of care. The problem really comes down to a predictive biomarker problem because if you could prospectively identify that 10 or 20% that was destined to respond to that drug, 
you would suddenly have a blockbuster, a really successful drug. And there is a good example of that, that is the EGFR inhibitors. These were initially tried in non-small cell lung cancer, and there was basically about a 10% response rate, and it wasn't looking good until it was identified that particular mutants of the EGFR receptor conferred sensitivity to these drugs. And then there was a predictive biomarker that could be used to better identify patients who were most likely to respond to this class of agents. So the biomarkers I, that, that, that are typically used, the genetic biomarkers or other biomarkers like cell surface marking or immunistic chemistry or mere histology, one thing they have in common is they're all static. That is, they take a cell that is no longer alive, it's a dead cell, and they make some static measurement, either what its DNA sequence is, or how much of this protein does it have, or does it bear this particular mutation. And I was just pointing out that I think there is a role for perturbation that we are overlooking. What I mean by that is a lot of, a lot of complicated <laughs> systems, uh, you learn the most about them, and this goes all the way back to you know just basic physics. You learn the most about them by giving them a poke and perturbing them a little bit. Now, here's an example, Newton's cradle. I mean, you could do, uh, you guys are all probably familiar with this, you could measure its density, maybe do mass spec on the, on the cables that are holding up these little balls that, that are there, and uh, uh, maybe even do you know, x-ray diffraction or something. But you could do all sorts of complicated text, but the, the way to really determine what's cool about this system is simply to poke or lift one of those balls and let it go, and suddenly what's really cool about this sort of complex system, still way simpler than a cell, but what's cool about this emerges way more than any static measurement would ever tell you. I think we can learn less than that for cells. So what I'm going to talk about, the kind of perturbations I'm going to be talking about today are taking cancer cell mitochondria and perturbing them with BH3 peptides. By taking that one step further, taking cancer cells, uh, uh, probing them with drugs, and seeing how it affects sort of uh, this step up here. And now I'm going to describe to you a little bit of the BCL2 family of protein that regulates uh, commitment to apoptosis at the mitochondrion and the BH3 peptides that are very important element in the signaling part of this pathway. So this is, this is uh, the essential circuitry, the BCL2 family, although there are ongoing sort of minor controversies or disagreements about how it is. I think, we, I think there's quite general agreement. Uh, I, I think most, at least 90% would agree that this is basically how the circuitry uh, works. Uh, this cytochrome C release here reflects the permeabilization of the mitochondrial outer membrane that can be considered, in most cases, the point of no return. That is the step of irreversible commitment to program cell death. Uh, when the C is released, it's not the only thing. There's other things that are released that also contribute to the phenotype. There's activation of cast phases and other things that take place. For simplification, I'm going to treat this as the point of no return, which it largely is when you consider uh, cell autonomous program cell death. This permeabilization of the mitochondrion is uh, caused by the insertion of oligomerized backs or back. These are kind of these are often called the effectors. These are the ones that actually homo-oligomerize and form pores in the mitochondrial outer membrane, allowing the release of intermembrane space proteins and causing mitochondrial dysfunction. You can imagine uh, elements that control such an important cell fate decision have further controls upon them. So for instance, backs and back uh, their, their activation, the conformation change they undergo to undergo activation can be enhanced by interaction with activator BH3-only proteins like BID and BIM 
and perhaps Puma as well. And there may well be activator molecules that go beyond the BH3 family, you know, go beyond the BCL2 family, that is, maybe even other small molecules, maybe different lipids, even like heat, there's evidence that heating a cell will enhance activation of that. These are called BH3-only proteins because BH just stands for BCL2 homology. And these have in common with all the other BCL2 family proteins only the BH3 region. The BH3 region, which is, which is absolutely required for pro-death function of pro-death BH3 proteins. So these guys are pro-death, these guys are pro-death. There's an anti-death or anti-apoptotic uh, group of the family too. These are led by the protein that named the family, BCL2, which is uh, a translocate. This was identified as present in a translocation, 1418, that is present in nearly all follicular lymphoma cells. So these anti-apoptotic proteins can bind monomeric backs and back and prevent them from oligomerizing and forming the pore. They can also bind and sequester and prevent them from activating backs and back. So these are inhibitors of cell death. These BH3-only molecules lack the ability to directly activate BACs and BAC, but they're still pro-death. We call them sensitizer bh 3 because what they can do is they can inhibit the inhibitors of cell death. The BH3 domains in these proteins compete for the BH3 binding site in these anti-apoptotic proteins. The way it works is these anti-apoptotic proteins have a hydrophobic, hydrophobic groove in them. And into that hydrophobic groove binds the hydrophobic face of the amphipathic BH3 domain, which is about a 20 amino acid uh, sequence, alpha helix, amphipathic alpha helix. So you get a competition for these binding sites where if these are pre-bound, for instance, these BH3 only can displace them, or they can preoccupy these sites so that the anti-apoptotic proteins no longer have any anti-apoptotic reserve to bind up subsequent death signals. So these are inhibitors of the inhibitors of apoptosis. So having showed you all this circuitry, really all you have to know is that BH3 domains are pro-death. And exposure of these to mitochondria would be expected to push a cell towards apoptosis. And that's what we exploit. Early, early in my work in Stan Korsmeyer's lab, where Patricia and I were postdocs, a lot of the work I did was just identifying do BH3 peptides by themselves have function? And it turns out that the BH3 peptides by themselves can largely recap recapitulate the pro-apoptotic function of the whole proteins. So subsequent to this, these have been major tools for our study. They're very convenient because you can order them, have them synthesized, and then you have a reagent that you can very accurately titrate from experiment to experiment to experiment. So now, in a way, you have death in a tube. You can titrate very exactly from different, from experiment to experiment, how much death signal you want to add, and then make some useful comparisons. So this is the essential tool that's going to form the backbone for everything I'm going to tell you from here on. It's something that my lab came up with. We call it BH3 profiling because it's always useful to have a convenient name for things. And the essential principle is just to take the mitochondria that you're interested in, expose them to BH3 peptides, and I'll show you the BH3 peptide toolbox in a second, and then measure mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. We could do the exposure in a couple of ways. Originally, we did it by physically isolating the mitochondria. More laterally, what we do is instead of isolating the mitochondria, we just permeabilize the whole cell gently so that the BH3 peptides can freely diffuse into the cells to contact the mitochondria. Then we measure mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. You do this using 
dyes that are sensitive to the loss of potential across this membrane that follows the permeabilization of the mitochondrion. So there's a loss of a fluorescent signal in that way. Or you can look at loss of cytochrome C, which is an intramembrane space protein that just diffuses away once the mitochondrion is permeabilized. So basically, we just treat mitochondria with peptides and look at mitochondrial dysfunction. Here's our toolbox. This is a binding chart where red indicates high affinity binding and green indicates low affinity or really non-measurable binding. Yellow is a little bit in between. Um, these are the BH3 peptides across the top, and these are the proteins inside. What you can see is that there's a couple different like qualities of peptides. There's the types of peptides that have a very selective pattern of interaction. So for instance, the NOXA peptide interacts only with MCL1. And the HRK peptide interacts only with BCLXL. And the BAD peptide interacts only with BCL2, BCLXL, and BCLW. So remember that these are essentially inhibitory interactions. So noxapeptide can be considered a prototype MCL1 inhibitor. And HRK is a prototype BCLXL inhibitor. And BAD can be considered a prototype BCL2 inhibitor. It also inhibits BCLXL and BCLW. You can see with a smart combination with HRK, you can discriminate between BCLXL and BCL2 dependence. Um, the point is that these are not by themselves good drugs. Okay, If you inject them in a mouse, they're gone very rapidly, high protein binding. They don't cross cell membranes. So they're essentially worthless as they are as drugs. But as tool molecules, we've found them very useful. So for instance, you can see that what we would predict is a, a mitochondrion, in a, if a cell had mitochondria that were very sensitive to the noxipeptide, that would suggest that it is an MCL1-dependent cell. Or if it's very sensitive to the bad peptide, you would suspect it's a BCL2 or BCLXL or BCLW-dependent cell. So we first did test whether we could, so, so I first became interested because inhibitors, small molecule inhibitors of BCL2 where even, even 10 years ago, it was clear they were being developed. And I wanted to understand, well, where are we going to use these? And what kind of cells will, can we somehow predict what cells will benefit most from it? So one of the steps we took to do this was to make explicitly a BCL2-dependent leukemia and an MCL1-dependent <coughs> leukemia. So these were ones that we made this way. They weren't just found that way in nature. So this is a mouse leukemia made by breeding the BCL2 oncogene to the MYC oncogene in the B cell compartment. And the mice are born, as others had showed before me, essentially at birth with a leukemia, B cell leukemia. What was special about these is they had a switchable BCL2 allele so we could switch off the BCL2, watch the leukemia go away very rapidly. Okay, And this is how we knew it was a BCL2-dependent leukemia explicitly. It was a lot of work using actually a total of three alleles because there was a switch in there. We did this all so we could confidently say this is a BCL2-dependent leukemia. And we did something very similar with the MCL1, except for it was not a switchable allele. But I can tell you phenotypically the leukemias were identical. So then we simply took the leukemias out and did BH3 profiling and asked can we correctly identify and, 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 and compare a BCL2 versus MCL1-dependent leukemia? And indeed, we could. This is work done by Jocelyn Brunel in my lab. So here, this is the BCL2-dependent leukemia, and these are the selectively in interacting peptides here in the middle. You can see it's sensitive only to the bad peptide. And remember, of these peptides, this is the only peptide that binds BCL2. 
Okay? So consistent also is over here, the MCL1 dependent leukemia is not sensitive to the bad peptide, but rather is sensitive to the NOXA peptide, indicating MCL1 dependence. So it appeared that we really could accurately discriminate between BCL2 and MCL1 dependence. And in subsequent work, we were actually able to get our hands on good small molecule inhibitors of BCL2. We were able to consistently, uh, prospectively identify BCL2 dependent uh, cells in order to uh, and, and predict that they would be they would have a cytotoxic response to BCL2 inhibitors. So these are the BCL2 inhibitors I'm largely uh, I'll be talking about because I really think they are the best they, they are the, the highest affinity. They also have the best preclinical support for working with the proper mode of action. And they are now in clinical trials. So ABT737 was the first one out as a tool compound. It's not orally available, so it never was pursued directly as a drug. But when you use this in mice or this, which is kind of an oral form of ABT737, they had the side effect of thrombocytopenia because it turns out platelets have mitochondria. I'm a hematologist. I did not know that. Platelets have, mito platelets have mitochondria, and these platelets are dependent on BCL-X long for survival. It wasn't work that we did, but very elegant work that other laboratories did, including David Huang's lab in Australia, showing that uh, mitochondria are BCL-XL dependent, and that's why this drug very rapidly clears. I mean, within an hour, you can take a normal platelet count down to zero with these drugs. So you can imagine that inhibited somewhat clinical development of this class of drugs. What, but it, I say that kind of jokingly, but I, it, it sounds worse than it really is. You can last without platelets for a little while without bleeding. And I think if I had fatal disease and this was likely to really treat my leukemia, I'd say, I would say, bring it on. I'll, I'll tolerate the, the short-term thrombocytopenia. But they, in another way to get around this, though, was to engineer out the BCL exile uh, inhibition. And they did. ABT199 is a very pure BCL2 inhibitor. binds with uh, picomolar affinity to uh, BCL2. And it's at least two logs less affinity for all the other BCL2 family proteins, including BCL exelon. And this is the drug that is, uh, uh, why is, is most currently being used in clinical trials. And I'll be getting back to that. But you'll see me discuss uh, uh, all three of these, I think, at different parts of my talk. So an initial interest we had was chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. This is a, an indolent leukemia or lymphoma. It also like forms lumps. So we, uh, some people consider it lymphoma. And we asked, is this a, what, what kind of uh, disease is this? Is this BCL2 dependent, MCL1 dependent, or which of the above? So we did BH3 profile on primary CLL cells. This is work done by Vicky Delgaiso Moore in my lab, who's since gone on to uh, uh, Elon University. And what she showed was indeed it looks like a BCL2 dependent leukemia in that the mitochondria are very sensitive to the bad peptide, but not to the noxin peptide. And remember, bad binds, you can see the bad binds to BCL2 with high affinity. Well, what's very nice is, is subsequently there was a clinical trial with ABT263, but more recently, ABT199, they were able to use more effective drug because you don't get the thrombocytopenia. And I could say that the clinical work has validated our prediction extremely well. So this is, this is not just circulating. This is actually nodal reduction in the clinical trials of ABT199 at a variety of different doses, you can see here. But almost all the patients have at least 50% shrinkage of their nodes. And there are a proportion that have complete responses. And this is what the lymphocyte count, because you, you very often have circulating lymphocytes in CLL. This is what the bone marrow looks like. Almost all the patients had normalization of their peripheral counts. And a large proportion had normalization of their bone marrows, which are very often involved in initiation. These are all patients 
who had refractory or relapse disease at the start. And these types of responses are really uh, important and dramatic for a single agent. Uh, so the, the complete response rate is about 25%. The overall response rate is much greater than 50%, more in the uh, 70 to 80% range. In fact, there was even some tumor lysis observed, which was uh, uh, problematic, but an indication, I think, of great biological activity. So I think, hopefully, I've demonstrated to you that we're able to correctly identify BCL2-dependent uh, cells and predict clinical response with good BCL2 inhibitors. There's other peptides, so-called promiscuous peptides, and these would include BIM, BID, PUMA, and BMF. And you can see that these, red is tight binding, I'll remind you. You can see that these are able to bind all of the anti-apoptotic proteins with high affinity. So they're not able to discriminate against between BCL2 and MCL1 dependence, for instance. They can give you an idea of the overall anti-apoptotic reserve of the cell. That is to say, you would expect uh, if a, if a uh, cell, or the mitochondria really, were very sensitive to the bin peptide, that would be a cell with relatively low anti-apoptotic reserve. Or if it was very resistant to the bin peptide, you would expect that it had great anti-apoptotic reserve. We call the first kind of cell a cell that is primed for death, or prime, and the other one less primed, or unprimed. So a typical assay we might do, this is a more sort of the more modern technique that we use, is, is uh, you take a tissue sample, you convert it into a single cell suspension if necessary. It might already be a cell line, but it's already a single cell suspension. We permeabilize very gently with digitonin, very low concentrations, like 0.05%, stain with our mitochondrial dye, and then we add, uh, then we simply add the peptides. And we can look at the results in real time on a plate reader and just evaluate loss of the fluorescent uh, uh, signal from the JC1 over time, and you get kinetic tracings that look like this. You can imagine having a negative control and a positive control. And the other peptides will cause, and the peptides you can see cause loss of fluorescence over the course of an experiment, which usually takes somewhere between one and three hours of exposure. And you can convert uh, these tracings into uh, what we what more typical, we think of as a BH3 profile, just by doing area under the curve calculations or similar trivial arithmetic. And Jeremy Ryan, a technician in my lab, really deserves great credit for doing the tons of work it took to make this sort of simple idea into a reality by optimizing the buffers, conditions, and, and simply doing a lot of work. So this is what, this is what a, a comparison of what a, a more prime than a less prime cell would look like. The more prime cell is very sensitive to all of the promiscuous peptides. I'll tell you that Puma and BMF are less potent than BIM and BID. So the less prime one is, is uh, sensitive to the BIM and BID peptide, but not the less potent Puma and BMF peptides. This is what the tracings look like. You can see all the peptides pretty much, pretty rapidly reduce it to the baseline, whereas here, only the, only the uh, BID and BIM peptides reduce the uh, signal to the baseline, whereas the Puma and BMF cause very little effect, indicating it is a less primed cell. So this is how we're able to rank cells. And you can imagine there's, you know, you can put any sort of number of cells in between, but we can compare cells for how primed they are. So. Hopefully I've convinced you that there is such a thing as priming, and we can measure what priming for death is. And some, some, sometimes you'll have a system that's closer to death, illustrated here, others that are a little bit further away from death, and that we can discriminate these things. Now, what does that matter? So there are a lot of things we can potentially use this for, but one question that bothered, has bothered me for a long time, and I think we were put in a situation to answer it, is why does chemotherapy ever work? I mean, conventional chemotherapy. This is the type of chemotherapy that targets DNA and microtubules. 
elements that are essentially ubiquitous. They're present in all the cells in your body, whether they're normal or if you're unfortunate enough to have cancer, malignant. So why do these things have such a tremendous therapeutic index? And I just want to tell you what I mean by tremendous therapeutic index. I mean that patients present to their doctors with 10 to the 13 cancer cells are given chemotherapy, it wipes out those 10 to the 13 cells, affects a 13 log kill, without affecting even a one log kill in any normal compartment in your body. That is therapeutic index. How is that explained? Now, the, the traditional explanation is that it's all based on differential proliferation, that the cancer cells are proliferating more rapidly. Uh, if someone wants to go in there later, we can discuss it in more detail. I'll just say that that is a hypothesis that has survived without the benefit of a lot of evidence for many, many years. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of counterexamples that I think would call that into question as the sole reason why there's a therapeutic index. Not, not, not least of which is we're very often killing mainly G0 cells with our chemotherapy, so it doesn't make sense. So our hypothesis was, well, maybe the reason why chemotherapy works is it kills by apoptosis. Certainly, tissue culture, all the drugs we use seem to kill by apoptosis. So, and maybe the cells that are perched near the edge are going to be ones that are sensitive to chemo. Those that are farther away are less sensitive to chemo. So maybe that explains why some cancers are more sensitive to others, and indeed, why cancers are sometimes more sensitive than normal cells, which is the only reason why chemo ever works. So this represents a huge amount of work, even though it's sort of summarized in one complex figure done by Kripsarosik and Tria Nini Keneally, postdocs in my lab. And they simply took primary cancer samples from patients before they started therapy and asked, how primed are they? And then later said, well, how did they do clinically? So here you can see these are three diseases. And, and we're really the sort of, if, if it looks odd, the choices, we're really rolling limited by the types of cancer we could readily get our hands on. So here you can see myeloma, ALL, and ovarian cancer. These are the ones who responded well to the chemo. These are the ones who responded poorly. Very dramatic difference in how primed they were. Childhood ALL, very highly primed, very chemosensitive disease. The rest of these cancers here, very chemo-resistant. Rarely do they respond to chemotherapy. And here are the normal cells. We also have, these are also, these are just the type of normal cells we could get from humans. We've also got, done a, a much broader parallel across entire adult uh, mouse tissues, but for obvious reasons, you can't get hold of normal human brain and myocardium very easily. Although, should any of you volunteer? <laughs> uh, but what we found is all the cells that we studied were very relatively very unprimed. There was one type of cell that was pretty prime, and those are the peripheral blood mononuclear cells. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these are also the dose-limiting toxicity in pretty much every cytotoxic chemotherapy we've ever given. I think it's because they are the most prime cell in our body, and it's the blood cells that are the limiting factor in how much chemo we can give. So the basic idea we have is that prime cells confronted by chemotherapy, they get a push, but they happen to be sitting next to the edge, so they go over the edge and they commit to cell death, and that's why it works well. Unprimed cells, they get pretty much the same push to a first order approximation, but they're far from the edge. So they don't go over the edge, they don't commit to cell death, and maybe at a later date they can repair their, their whatever damage was caused and get on with their life. So I'm gonna take you through a story that's in a little more detail. Uh, acute myelogenous leukemia, or myeloid leukemia, AML. This is work done by uh, Trang Bo, a uh, graduate student in my lab. AML is a leukemia of adults. About 40% can be cured with chemotherapy alone. The way it works is someone presents, uh, their, the diagnosis is made, and very rapidly have to undergo treatment because they will die of the disease very shortly if they're not treated very rapidly. 
They're generally given an intense chemotherapy regimen we call induction chemotherapy. And the goal of this induction chemotherapy is to induce a complete remission. That is, that is uh, destroy the cancer to the point where we can no longer detect it. We know that's not enough. In order to be cured, they need to consolidate that remission with either allogeneic bone marrow transplant or more chemotherapy. It, it, both of those, both of those um, strategies have a success rate in absolutely curing patients. That is to say, cancer goes away completely and never comes back. So Prang did a VH3 profiling. In this case, we use a fax base. I'm just going to present briefly the technique because it, it shows the potential breadth of it. Uh, in this case, we knew that the bone marrow samples we'd be getting to study pretreatment AML were going to be heterogeneous. They would contain the AML myeloblasts, but they would also contain a lot of normal elements. They wanted to just study the priming of the blast cells alone. So in this case, what we did, very similarly, they're already a single cell suspension. We would do a uh, FICOL gradient right there to, uh, to isolate just the white blood cells. And for those of you who are interested, I have a published cocktail recipe that looks just like a FICOL gradient. It's published in blood. You can look it up. Um, the, um, you treat these cells with digitonin to gently permeabilize them. You treat with the peptides. You treat with the same dyes. But now we're going to measure the dye response by fat, which is just a fluorimeter. And we'll discriminate cells based on gating. In this case, you can discriminate blasts from the rest of the population, looking at a low CD45 middle side scattering sort of signal. And this is what pathologists have used for ages, so it's not something we had to reinvent. And what we could verify looking at cytospins that we were indeed using this gate identifying blast populations. So we studied myeloblasts with BH3 profiling, and we could look at migration of the signal between like untreated and peptide-treated samples. And that way, we could rank the priming of different AML samples. So when Trang did this, she compared uh, uh, people who did well with chemo to people who did poorly, and in fact, ultimately compared it on condensing a lot of this into one figure to normal hematopoietic stem cells. And I think he, this really tells, I think, a lot. So the patients, he, I'll start with these. These are the patients who received chemotherapy, even receiving this very intense induction chemotherapy, did not even get a complete remission up front. These are patients, their treatment is very compromised, very difficult at this point. Contract, and, and you can see their priming is the lowest of any of the categories we study. Lower, in fact, than the normal hematopoietic stem cells. That's a problem. That's an inverse therapeutic uh, uh, ratio. Look at those who, were get, who, were, who went into a complete remission, received chemo, and who were cured. These are the highest primed of them all. In between are the ones who received chemotherapy, went into a complete remission, but ultimately relapsed on chemotherapy. These patients, although we don't go into it here, might potentially be rescued with a bone marrow transplant down the road. Many are not. But notice that the HSCs are somewhat in the middle. And the lesson I think we learn here is that if you're more primed than hematopoietic stem cells, the normal cells then you're likely to do well. If you're less primed, then you're likely to do poorly. And that's because that's really the limiting factor for how much chemo we could give. We could probably kill more of these cells and more of these cells by giving 10 times as much chemotherapy. We'd kill more myeloblasts. We'd also kill way more patients. We'd, we'd probably kill all the patients at the doses I just gave in that sort of ridiculous example. Um, and, and this indicates, I think, the bar that has to be has to be has to sort of be beaten in order to be curable and able by conventional chemotherapy. So it's a little unsatisfying for the um, for the patients 
who are in the poorly primed category, that they, you know, we have this good predictor. We're going to be testing and see if we can predict response to better guide physicians. Uh, but it's a little unsatisfying to say, oh, well, the guidance for these people is that they're very poorly primed and they're doomed. So we wanted to ask, is, is there a way we could maybe make them more primed or perturb their apoptotic pathway to sort of induce apoptotic signaling somewhat selectively in these myeloblasts? So we did BH3 profiling on these, but I showed you like the results of the BIM peptide, which is a promiscuous peptide. That's how I ranked the priming in what I showed you before. This is the bad peptide, which I'll just remind you uh, is a more selective binder of BCL2. And what we found is if we compared, uh, compared BCL2 dependence in the hematopoietic stem cells versus the leukemia cells, Leukemia cells seem to be significantly more dependent on BCL2 than HSCs. HSCs are not very dependent on, on BCL2 at all. I can tell you parenthetically they're quite they're quite dependent on BCL1 instead. But the, what's nice is the myeloblasts, even the chemo-resistant myeloblasts, tend, not in every case, but tend to be more BCL2 dependent, suggesting that there is a built-in therapeutic index for BCL2 inhibition in AML. It's not going to work for everyone, but for a lot of patients it looks like it might be. So this is work done by Leah Hogdalen in my laboratory. A similar work was one done by a collaborator, Marina Konoplava, down at MD Anderson, who we've worked closely with on this. She just took a whole lot of primary samples from people with AML and treated them ex vivo with either ABT199 or ABT263. And you can see uh, that this is a cytotoxicity reading. Um, the, what she read out here is the EC50 of the drug. And I want to point out, this scale here is nanomolar. So the most sensitive myeloblasts were sensitive in the sub-nanomolar range. And she only waited eight hours to look at, look at whether they were killed or not. Just as you would expect for effective therapy, these kill very rapidly since they directly communicate with the mitochondria and commit to cell death. There is a range, though. Some are way less sensitive, and their EC50 is in the 100 nanomolar or greater range. Those might be less sensitive to the drug. We'll see. But what's exciting about this is this is a similar range of ex vivo sensitivity to what we observe for CLL. And we know that CLL cells are sensitive in vivo. Now, we also compared our ex vivo sensitivity here, the EC50, with our BH3 profiling, suggesting that there is a pretty decent relationship, suggesting that maybe BH3 profiling can be used to predict in vivo sensitivity and used as a predictive biomarker for ABT199. And in one short test that we did with Marina Konoplava, it appears to be the case. So Marina made this, these are two different uh, uh, patient-derived xenografts, uh, uh, one with uh, a tumor that subsequently turned out to be sensitive to ABT199, and one that turned out to be resistant to ABT199 uh, based on the measurement of residual cells following treatment with this as a single agent. And we were indeed able to show that the mitochondria of this sample were more sensitive to BAD, more BCL2 dependent, than the ones of the resistance sample. This is an N of two, so statistically perhaps not that meaningful, but it's the one time we've been able to try it so far in a direct in vivo comparison. It looks like we can discriminate. So where are we going with this? So um, I'm happy to say that just in the last few weeks, uh, clinical trials have started at four different sites in the country, MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, Ohio State and Colorado, actually testing now, based on the preliminary data we and Marina provided, testing the single agent efficacy of ABT199 in relapse refractory AML. And we're also going to be able to profile all the uh, samples. And all I can say is stay tuned. I'm very excited about this trial. We'll see how they respond. We're also going to take 
the work that we did on the, with the promiscuous peptides, looking at overall timing to see if we can better direct the allocation of allogeneic bone marrow transplant, potentially toxic therapy, in the under 60 population, as well as looking at the over 60 population, trying to decide who should get induction therapy at all, because it's more toxic to those patients. It also has a lower rate of uh, complete remission. So uh, it's, it's, it, we need a better assignment of, uh, of induction therapy in the over 60s. Okay. Um, okay, this is the last section of my talk. I, I've talked to you about the guidance of uh, ECO2 inhibitors and the guidance of cytotoxic chemotherapies. But there's a whole new class of agents that I, I don't know if they're really a class, but a type of agent that I think could be described as selective pathway inhibitors. This is what there's a tremendous amount of interest in uh, in the last 10 years, really starting with Gleevec, imatinib, which was an extremely, it still is an extremely effective therapy for CML. And what, what struck me is that the number of these that are approved is only going to, and continues to, increase from year to year. But I'll just take you back to what I said before. Is that I think we run the risk of, of treating patients who aren't going to respond to these, as well as some patients, I think, would respond to pathway inhibitors that are sort of offbeat, because maybe drug development is really focused on kidney cancer for a particular kinase inhibitor. But really, that kinase inhibitor might work really great in certain subsets of lung cancer or leukemia. The problem is to prospectively identify who is going to benefit from these, from these kinase inhibitors. Now, I already told you that I'm pessimistic about the ability of genomics to make these kind of calls, to make these kind of predictions. So what do we do? Do we just give up? I think there's actually a good paradigm that is sort of staring us in the face. It's a little bit unsophisticated and I think unappealing to large sectors of the uh, sort of cancer biomarkers crowd because it is so simple-minded. I think simple-minded to the point of what they might think of as cheating. You're cheating to do this. But let's look at what the microbiological world does. If you have a urinary tract infection or a blood infection or a pneumonia, what your doctor will try to do will try to isolate the infected component and from it grow a lawn of bacteria like we have right here. What he will not proceed to do is sequence that bacteria to direct therapy. Instead, what your doctor will do is put on that lawn of bacteria different little round filters, each of which is soaked with a different type of antibiotic. And then he'll say, which one kills best? Okay, so ones that kill really well, like this one here, nice zone of clearing, would be higher priority for treatment. Ones that kill very poorly would have lower priority. See, we're going direct to a direct phenotypic test. We're directly perturbing the, the bacteria in a way that is as close as possible to what's going on in vivo, which is exposing the bacteria to drug with whatever drug is uh, taken, IV or PO. So why do we do this in cancer? It's very simple-minded, seems very effective. Why don't we do it? Okay, I think one of the reasons is, is that this type of strategy got a bad name in the 80s and 90s. People tried for a long time with so-called clonogenic assays to link uh, response to therapy ex vivo to in vivo response. And I will tell you, if you look at those assays, it's not that there's no relationship whatsoever between what's going on ex vivo and in vivo. The problem is the relationships weren't good enough to be clinically useful tools. All right? The main problem was that these types of assay required days, minimum of days of ex vivo culture. So you'd have to take the tumor out, grow it ex vivo. You might not know whether you're growing tumor cells or fibroblasts. A lot of the cells might arrest, they might die. They might alter their phenotype because they've been growing on plastic for the last five days instead of growing in the lung or the breast or wherever they came from. 
So they weren't that good. But this tells me, this seemed to indicate to me that the, I still don't think that there's anything wrong with the theory. I think there's a tremendous amount of power waiting to be unlocked in here. It really just is a technical problem. How do we make early measurements that don't require long-term ex vivo culture? How do we make early measurements of response to drugs in order to predict ultimate cytotoxic response? And this is what we call a dynamic BH3 profile. I told you we, we can measure proximity to the sort of cliff's edge, to the, to the threshold of apoptosis using BH3 profiling. Well, that means that we can measure whether that proximity, whether, whether the cell actually gets closer to the edge after treatment with a drug. And what we said is this will only work if short-term changes in priming eventually correlate with ultimate toxicity. Here's the, here's the kind of uh, uh, processing plan, is you would take your simple, process it to a single cell suspension, but instead of going directly to BH3 profiling, you stick instead in between a drug treatment. This could be maybe a single drug, could be a whole panel of drugs, could be drugs in combination, really doesn't matter. Then after that incubation, you know, we found 16 hours to be a pretty good sweet spot, but that might vary from agent to agent. But after this incubation, then you just do the BH3 profile and ask the question, is there a difference between drug-treated and drug-untreated cells in the delta priming that's observed? Okay, so for instance, you can see if this is, this is a fictitious experiment, and here's delta priming, uh, the percent priming increase, and 10 different agents, you can see that this agent, that agent, and that agent cause a pretty significant delta priming. So our hypothesis would be it's these agents that will be most likely to promote cytotoxicity the many days later that it takes for actual cell toxicity to be observed by conventional means. So uh, Juan Montero uh, in my laboratory, a postdoc, has gone through and tested this in a lot of different systems. I'll show you this test because it's my favorite. It's pretty unbiased. Uh, he just took a bunch of cell lines. I told him just make sure they're all they're cancer cell lines and make sure they're all different. Same thing with a bunch of pathway inhibitors. They're all kinase inhibitors, but basically they're all just very different. So I just wanted to see a diversity of treatment and diversity of cells. I asked, can we predict cytotoxic response based on this very early dynamic BH3 profiling result? Okay, and guess what? I'm telling you about it, which means that yes, we could. So here's an example of a leukemia cell, K562 cell. And we, this is the delta priming we observed at 16 hours. Now, for all these kinase inhibitors, for death to even start, it takes a minimum of three days or so. So we're predicting death at three or four days. Is what, is what our goal is. And you can see there's a delta priming here, here, and here. That's kind of the fingerprint of our, of our uh, chemical panel on this cell line. <coughs> Matches very well with the actual cytotoxicity that was observed at 72 hours. So let's go from a leukemia cell. This is a non-small lung cancer cell. Okay, similar, very different pattern, of course, but a pattern nonetheless, which, which offers a hypothesis to be tested. And indeed, if it, it might not be obvious, but the cytotoxicity observed doesn't perfectly match this, but the three biggest, the, the bi three biggest delta primings correlate to the three biggest uh, cytotoxicities. Melanoma, very different pattern, but a pattern nonetheless that matches very well the cytotoxicity that we eventually observed. This is a, a lymphoma cell line. Again, the pattern up here matches the pattern down here very well. And overall, the overall, uh, across all our cell lines and all our drugs, the early identification of a delta priming at 16 hours predicted very well the cytotoxicity that was eventually observed. And this is just sort of a summary statistic across the blood cancer cell lines where you can see if you compare the delta priming to the cell death, there's actually a pretty good correlation, especially considering that we have no preconceptions about the type of therapy being used. 
Solid tumor, same thing, pretty good correlation. These three outliers are all from the same cell line, HCT116. I don't know why that performed relatively poorly. You can see if we chuck that out, there's an incredibly good relationship. As there is, there's just a very good relationship. Not sure why that one performed differently. So overall, if you're looking, if you're trying to predict response, you really would, would like to, to package this as a binary predictor. I don't want to go into too much detail, but a good way of assessing the quality of a binary predictor is something called a receiver operating curve, which is what this is. It, it lets you know what the trade-off is between sensitivity and specificity of your assay. A good area under the curve, the higher this number is, uh, the, the better is your predictor generally. One would be a perfect predictor, which means everyone is always assigned to the correct bin. And I can just tell you the 0.87, which is what we got over a wide variety of agents, wide variety of blood and, uh, and solid tumor cancer cell line, is it compares very favorably to almost any molecular diagnostic used in the clinic to direct target therapy. I, I'm really not aware of one that would outperform that. So how does this work with actually in vivo cancer cells? One opportunity we had to test this was in chronic myelogenous leukemia. In this case, we had a type of cancer that had actually been treated with a targeted inhibitor, imatinib, for many years. So we're actually able to rapidly do this clinical experiment because we could get, uh, we could get samples from a frozen bank where the uh, response criteria was already graded, that was already available, so we didn't have to wait for subsequent response. So Juan formed an MPHP profiling on this set of 30 or so uh, samples. And after that, he segregated them into two groups, whether they were responders to the drug or non-responders determined by the clinicians often several years beforehand. And I'll just show you that very nice segregation, just based on this delta priming that was measured, you know, it's essentially a same-day test. We were able to very nicely discriminate responders from non-responders. And, and this performed extremely well, even better than the ones uh, before, this is just one drug, one leukemia. Uh, this, this performs extremely well in receiver operating curve assay with an area of curve of 0.933. So I think we have very good evidence to support our hypothesis that early death signaling can predict subsequent in vivo cytotoxicity by a drug. And, but this isn't just about you know, proving an interesting hypothesis. I think this is potentially a very valuable, very powerful tool for guiding therapy of, of drugs that are you know, targeted agents. Even when you don't have a genetic biomarker, who cares? This cell, I, would, I, will be, I will admit to you, this assay does not open in any way a window to the beautiful complexity of a cell. It doesn't tell you what's interacting with anything else. It tells you very few bits of information, not terabytes. Okay? But the bits it tells you are very useful and very actionable. And they get back to that question that I started at the beginning, how am I gonna treat this cancer patient? So I'll just conclude with like a metaphor remember that struck me some years ago. I brought home a laptop. This is like 10 years ago. I brought home a laptop and um, it's greeted by my kids and my dog and my wife. And the dog, exploring the way if it was most familiar, examined the laptop by sniffing it all over, uh, okay? Looking at the sort of like static laptops and they're not really touching it at all, but just sniffing every aspect of it at the conclusion of 30 seconds or so was confident that it had uh, gotten from that all the information uh, she really needed. My children, I would argue, learned a lot more about what's cool about a laptop, because what did they do? They turned it on and started poking and moving around and sort of poking the system, perturbing the system, see what's cool with it. And I think that's what we need to think about doing more of in cancer. 
If we have a focused question, I think there's ways that we can answer very important focused questions using very focused perturbations. So in summary, I think that the dynamic BH3 profiling described to you could potentially be used on a wide variety of primary cells to predict in vivo response. And we're now sort of engaged, uh, starting the process of engaging in relationship with companies who are doing clinical trials to just say, we're not, gonna, we're not going to stratify their entry criteria yet. First, we're just going to see, does it work? We'll just be bystanders to see, are we able to correctly identify the responders in a clinical trial? I think we can certainly respond, predict response to BCL2 inhibitors, but we'll see. We're testing that directly right now. And we're also, hopefully, we'll see uh, whether we can actually better assign uh, conventional chemotherapies based on BH3 profiling. Um, oops, shouldn't have done that. So I want to thank some of the people who contributed to this. I think I've thanked the individual postdocs. Uh, along the way. These are other people who are in my laboratory. I need to thank my clinical collaborators, especially the chemo collaborators like uh, Dan D'Angelo and Richard Stone. We would not be able to do this work without, without uh, enthusiastic clinical collaborators or without the support of the NCI and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. So I'll be happy to stop now and uh, take any uh, questions you might have. Um, thank you for your talk. I'm just wondering if BH3 profiling, you said can definitely predict um, sort of like uh, drug sensitivity and drug response, but can it? Because sometimes cancers respond to chemotherapy, they go away, but sometimes they come back also and they have developed chemo resistance. Does your assay in any way can give us an idea about chemo resistance in the long run? I don't, um, that remains to be seen. I think that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'll just give you, the example of AML, <coughs> example of AML, you can see that we were able to discriminate between those who underwent a complete remission and those who underwent a complete remission and subsequently relapsed. There was a very, there was a very significant difference in, in the median priming of those two samples. I have to say I was surprised by that. It suggests that the median, we were using comparison of medians of the distribution of the sensitivity of the peptides, but it suggests that the median of the distribution gives you a lot of information about relapse. What we did, sort of our first pass. What we're doing now, Patrick Bola, a postdoc in the lab, is now going a little bit beyond that and saying, okay, there's the median. That's one interesting statistic for a distribution. But the other thing you can look at is the coefficient of variation of a distribution. And he's asking the question, to what extent is it the outliers, not the median, but how wide the distribution is, to what extent is it the position of the outliers that will uh, dictate uh, long-term uh, sorts of responses? And all I can say is that type of work takes time. It's a very good question, and we're trying to better understand it. Finally, at least in the simplest terms, as BIN finds these cells, it could be not, it could be another process as well. Finally, the BIN argument is, are the drugs making BIN go to PCL2 to prime them? And if so, what do we know about what Which drugs? Do you mean the ABT drugs? I'm, no, I'm thinking this is the transduction drug. Okay. I'm trying to get to the idea of rationally, if you know the prime is mediated by bin, either upregulation or translocation, can you rationally target that using uh, modern drug ideas? So, so I don't know about the last part. I, I mean, I think 
what I know about these sort of target pathway inhibitors. I'll tell you one thing about the kinase inhibitors. This came up on a, on a, on a grant review where I was taken, a, taken to task by saying that kinase inhibitors kill by apoptosis. However, I have to say I'm unaware of any kinase inhibitor that kills that does not kill by apoptosis. There may be, so, so, you know, so I do, I'm pretty confident they all kill by apoptosis. There's pretty good evidence in certain sets. This might be what you're referring to. For instance, like EGFR inhibitors, going even a little more specific, there seems to be a pretty tight correlation between upregulation of BIM and induction of cell death. And this is something that's being studied in, in, in some detail, I think, by Jeff Engelman at Mass General. I don't think all kinase inhibitors operate in that same way. There's certainly some studies where you can find the presence and absence of BIM doesn't matter that much for certain kinase inhibitors. Uh, so uh, I don't think that, that I, I think this too complicated a family to have any sort of a monogenic answer. But there are cancers, like it looks like at least in models, where uh, uh, BIM is required for the cell death induced by EGFR inhibitors. Whether there's a way to exploit that, I don't know offhand, but maybe there is. One way would be, we think neck inhibitors can cause upregulation of BIM. The problem is, if you keep one neck inhibitor for five days, nothing happens. But if you put an ABC199, within 24 hours, and BIMs come up, you might, that might be a combination of <coughs> Right. I've heard, I've heard other people in other diseases, I don't know which disease you're talking about, but I've heard in other diseases, similar observations with um, sort of mech erc pathway inhibitors combined with ABT109 actually collaborating quite well. I, I don't know about leukemias, but in, in solid tumor, there is a lot of heterogeneity in the tumor. So there are areas in the tumor. So do you think that the priming is the same in all areas of the tumor? Or how could you? Yeah, that's a that's that's a great question. I mean, anytime we we run a fax analysis of anything, even a cell line, there's always a distribution in sensitivity. So so the, uh, you know, I, I believe that there will be heterogeneity priming across the tumor. What I think would be really cool to understand is whether that is related to something we can identify. For instance, proximity to a blood vessel, proximity to the outer shell of the tumor, proximity to tumor-associated macrophages. In order to be able to study that, we need to be able to do our assay on sort of sections that recapitulate, you know, sections straight from the tumor that still contain, that aren't dispersed, that still contain, you know, the architecture that was present. And all I can say is that that is, I think, a solvable, but a major problem. And Jeremy Ryan, my technical whiz, is working on exactly that. Uh, but I think that'll be a technical challenge to try to address that question experimentally. What is the nature of differential priming by the different peptides? And what's the molecular biology that underlies it? And now, the that, that can be, so, how to answer that? Well, it, I think I it's mean, almost. Surefied bacteria, shouldn't they all work before? Um, from, from mitochondria from different cells? from different cells, should they all work? I mean, it's based on, so the what determines priming is probably the simultaneous interaction of 15 or so BCL2 family proteins. Um, so it's not always easy to identify the protein that's responsible for a difference. There are some cases, we've done experiments, for instance, where we, uh, like growth factor withdrawal, where we can see that after growth factor withdrawal, the cells become much more prime. And that corresponds very closely with a dramatic upregulation of BIM and PUMA, which are pro-apoptotic proteins. 
And if you get rid of BIM and PUMA, other people are showing you, you don't get this enhancement of cell death. So there are some cases where I think you can identify proteins that are very much responsible. In a case where you have like this cancer and this cancer, it becomes a really tricky problem what the actual molecules are determining it because some are up in this one, some are down in this one, and it's not clear which it is. I originally, I originally, my original plan in trying to make predictions about cancer cells, way back when I was kind of starting my independent career, was in fact to measure these things individually and use that to make my predictions. But it, 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 I very, it's technically difficult and very rapidly just seemed so noisy to me that I gave up on that and decided I had to figure out some functional summary approach because just like counting the proteins by themselves is going to be way too hard to get useful information. Even though there, I have no doubt they're eventually the, the molecular basis of it, it's just very hard to, it's 15 moving parts to, to put together the system's biology equation that becomes a useful predictor. I mean, there are proteins in the membrane of the mitochondria from different cell types that, in fact, provide different accessibility to the it, it could be. I mean, what I actually, what I'm attracted to about our approach is I don't have to know that. It's well, like, because I think it's too, it's too hard to know. There's so much that could possibly, it, it became very frustrating. And, and, I, and I thought, well, what do I really want to know? Can I just answer the questions I want to answer without having to figure that out? Because it's very hard. What we're actually going with is if there was a final common pathway that determined sensitivity, then maybe the attack on the, sense, on the final common pathway would actually then make all cells sensitive. Well, I think that final common pathway is the BCL2 family. So, Hello, this is Larry. <laughs> I wonder what Larry looked like, though. I did. <laughs> 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 OK.